This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, everyone. Good afternoon. Did you have a good lunch? That food was amazing, huh? That was, that was some good food. Yeah, well, we're blessed, and now it's our afternoon, and we trust that you will make it through this session without snoozing. <laughs> so let's stay alert. Let's pray that God will bless, and let's pray that God will speak to our hearts and let us know anything that he would want us to understand. And, um, and as we... As we um, gather together to begin, let's, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer as we get started. Father in heaven, we just want to acknowledge you and pray that you would give us your, your blessing once again as we, as we seek to uh, ponder and just wrap our minds around um, concepts that may be new to us or maybe things that we have not um, uh, attempted to to accomplish or practice ourselves, and we just want to have your blessing as we consider these things. May the Holy Spirit be the one who instructs us and convicts our hearts, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. On the way home from church, a little girl turned to her mother, and she said, Mommy, the preacher's sermon this morning, hmm, confused me. And the mommy said, oh, is, is, is that so? Why? Why is that? And the little girl replied, well, Hmm, he said that God is bigger than we are. Is that true, Mommy? The Mommy said, yes, that's true. Okay. But then he also said that God lives in us, Mommy. God lives in us. Is that true, too? And the Mommy said, well, yes, that is true. Well, said the girl, hmm. But mommy, if God is bigger than us and he lives in us, mommy, wouldn't he show through? <laughs> wouldn't he show through? You know, I love the logic of children. It doesn't have these layers of hypocrisy or, you know, or pretense. You know, it's real. It's very real. And yes, I do believe that God is bigger than me. And as sure as, I, as, as sure as I am that you believe that he's bigger than you. And I do believe he lives in me. As I'm sure you agree, he lives in you. You know, after all, we sing songs like, How Great Thou Art. And then, Into My Heart. So yes, we do believe that he is a bigger God and that he does dwell in us. So let's follow the girl's logic then as a church. If God is bigger than the Seventh-day Adventist church, make it applicable here, then, and he abides in us as a body of believers, a body of faith, wouldn't then he show himself through us? When we greet a curious visitor that walks in through our church doors and he's reeking of, of weed and he wanders into our church, will God show himself through us? When we face 
unpreferable circumstances with postmoderns. And we find ourselves in situations where we're provoked or it's a challenging thing. Will God show himself through us? As, as we talk about postmoderns with one another, will God show himself through us? As postmoderns live within a mile radius of our churches, will God show himself through us? You know, it's all, it's all comes down, it all comes down to what postmoderns see in us. You know, another song that I've learned, known for years is This Little Light of Mine. You, you like that song? This Little Light of Mine. I'm going to let it what? Shine. And then it's that next stanza that says, but don't let Satan do what? No, it doesn't say that. Don't let Satan it out. Ah, I got you there. But if we were to be honest with ourselves, though, how many of us would have to admit that we may have let Satan it out and God is no longer shining through us? You know, we hear people at GYC, we hear it here at our sessions, we hear it in the evening meetings, we hear people talk about being on fire for Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm on fire for Jesus and I have a testimony I want to share with you. And, and we like to introduce some, some of our GYC attendees here who, who are on fire for Jesus and blah, blah, blah. And we hear this term, this phrase talked about again and again and again. And we wonder, we wonder what it means anymore. There's somebody that says, oh, I know that phrase. I've heard it spoken so many times. But if we could only relate to that reality because it's not ours. It's not our reality to be on fire with the Holy Spirit. For the fire of the Holy Spirit to shine through us. Someone here may be thinking, you know, I act the part as a Christian because, but it's just a good performance. There is no fire in me. Strongholds have a, have a hold in my life. It's a secret that no one knows, and I'm at my wit's end. I want my joy back in my life. I want to get excited about ministry again. I've lost the vision and direction in my life. I need to live again. And if the precious love of God is to show through us to a postmodern world, if we want to see revival, freedom, and healing taking place in our communities through us, if we expect to see something revolutionary happen in our cities and towns and neighborhoods, then we must give God permission first to do something revolutionary in us if our church is going to take it to the next level and something revolutionary is going to finally happen in our impact among postmoderns then a revolution something revolutionary has to happen in me first in you first Leroy Froome some of you may recognize his name he was a longtime minister and historian he wrote this he said, God cannot do something revolutionary with men until he first has done something revolutionary for men through the incoming of the Holy Spirit. 
Did you get all that? If God's going to do something revolutionary in the postmodern worldview culture, then it has to begin with him doing something revolutionary in me through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And it can begin with the simple yet bold prayer. Ignite a fire in me. Ignite a fire in me. Ignite a fire in me. Wouldn't you agree that there's something, something mysterious about fire that captivates our attention? Isn't it? Don't you find yourself watching a bonfire and just mesmerized by, by the sight? And you can't take your eyes off the fire? It shines. It captivates our attention. It, it shines with all its glory, that, that beckoning, beautiful, swaying, enticing, engulfing, purifying, refining fire. And throughout the centuries, God has used fire as a symbol of his glory, presence, and power. We could take time, but we won't, to take a look at so many Bible passages where, where fire reveals or is a symbol of the presence of God. The pillar of fire, this flaming sword, the pillar of fire, the burning bush, the, the Mount Carmel experience with Elijah. I mean, we could go on and on. Fire, fire, fire. And there's a u- unique manifestation of fire that is recorded in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Would you come with me? It's a passage that that we all know too well. But let's refer to, refer to it in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then, they, then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each one. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. For, for those that witnessed this, or, or more specifically for those that were in the room with the doors and windows shut, Yet there was a wind that was blowing inside enclosed room. And, and these tongues of fire began to come down from the ceiling and land on them. I, I want to believe that this was not a shock. This was not something, quote, unexpected per se. They should have known that this was coming. This was coming. Why? Because a voice in the wilderness had predicted this would happen. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. This was not some unexpected surprise. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, some in that very room had heard John the Baptist preach. And maybe, just maybe, in that very moment, as that tongue of fire lands upon them, maybe... More than one of them recalled these words that John the Baptist spoke in verse 11, Matthew 3, 11, I, de- I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he, not I, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He, he will baptize you with what? 
with the Holy Spirit and, and fire. And fire. Notice that the word and is, again, a little key word. Just as it is, it was in the passage of, we should worship him with spirit and truth. Therefore, and also, this is the same thing. This is not speaking of two distinct fires. One of Holy Spirit and another one, oh, baptism is one of Holy Spirit and another one of fire. No, not at all. This is the one of the same. Holy Spirit, therefore, fire. If only because fire, natural fire, is, is, is truly something that gives evidence of the characteristics of the work of the Holy Spirit. So this thought-provoking expression, Holy Spirit and fire, is actually one in the same. And it's a baptism that only Christ can perform. Only Christ. That's why in my ministry, when I baptize, I tell the individuals, even before we go into the baptistry, that, listen, I, I should give you a heads up. You're going to be baptized twice. They give me this look like, uh, uh, twice? Yep, you're going to go down and then... Listen, this is what's going to happen. And then I explain to them. You know, as I don't know about you, but whenever you have witness baptisms, have you ever seen the preacher lift up his hand and some pointed out here, others over here, and others over there? And do you see that hand wandering all over the place? And as a kid, I used to see this. I'm PK, you know, pastor's kid. And, and, uh, and I, I would just, it would just bug me. It's like, what's the purpose? What's up with that hand that ends up going all over the place? There doesn't seem to be a, an agreed upon, you know, understanding of what in the world this means. And, and so that bugged me to the point is I, I, I can't operate that way. I'm going to have to, I, I'm going to have to, 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 to come to, to a, a conclusion of why I do what I do. And, and so if you read in the book of Acts, you see that, that there were instances where men and women were filled with the Holy Spirit and if you take a closer look at that passage, you'll notice that it came after the laying on of hands. And so as we're preparing for water baptism, I place my hand upon their heads, the laying on of hands, and I pray first to Christ, who alone can baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, and pray that they would be baptized with fire. Baptism number one. And then we proceed, of course, to baptism number two. But again, it's a baptism that only Christ can perform. And he did say in Luke 12, 49, I have come to set the world on fire. Did you know Jesus said that? It's in Luke 12, 49. I have come to set the world on fire. Thus we pray, ignite a fire in us. As a matter of fact, there are several characteristics of natural fire that teach us the fiery character of the work of the Holy Spirit. God's revealing, consuming, and powering fire. When we are immersed in the presence of the Holy Spirit, baptizo, immersed in the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, the effect is similar to that of natural or literal fire in the natural world. Fire reveals, fire consumes, fire also ignites us for action, all these characteristics are taught through the symbolism of the fire of the Holy Spirit. And it was Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, he said once, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. Can you agree with that? 
We are as ships without wind, branches without sap, and coals without fire. We are useless. Useless. So I would be amiss to embark here on a discussion about how to communicate Bible teachings in a way that the postmodern mind can, 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 can be open to considering and be open-minded to further discussion and dialogue. Before we even go there, we have to understand that without the baptism of the fire of the Holy Spirit, we are useless, useless. But thanks be to God that by His grace alone, we can be useful for the Master. But somebody here, I know it, you can read your thoughts. Somebody is thinking right now, he has no idea who I am. He obviously doesn't know me. God cannot use me. If he only knew my story, if he only knew who I am and what I've done, I am useless. I don't have much hope that I can be, quote, useful for the master. But wait a minute, according to who? Who, who said that? Who, who put that thought in your mind? Hmm, who said that? Because consider with me this. Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a temper. David had an affair. Noah got drunk. Useless? Jonah ran from God. Paul was a murderer. Gideon was insecure. Miriam was a gossiper. Martha was a worrier. Thomas was a doubter. Sarah was impatient. Elijah was moody. Moses stuttered. Zacchaeus was short. Abraham was old. Lazarus, well, he was dead. Useless? <laughs> Useless? And can you relate to any of them? Huh? I would venture to say that many of us would relate to most, if not all, of these shady characters. If only because we're all human beings. Yet each and every one of these individuals, for ages to come, will give a testimony before angels and before the redeemed of how they were found to be useful for their master. Why? Because... And only because of one reason, they were baptized with the revealing, consuming fire of the Holy Spirit. It has to begin there. And the fire of the Holy Spirit gives us sanctified boldness to reach unbelievers for Christ. And for the remainder of this session, we're going to take a look at ways to reach postmodern people in our everyday life. But it must always begin with a prayer, a daily prayer. Lord, baptize me with the Holy Spirit and agonize with God and wrestle with God. I'm not going to let you go until you baptize me with the Holy Spirit. So Ellen G. White penned these basic principles of successful evangelism. You've heard it. I'm guessing often more than once, but you know what, though? They're timeless principles that I believe are so simple and effective. In Christian service, page 119, we, we read these familiar words. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior 
mingled with people as one who desired their good. He showed sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. And then, emphasis on the word then, he bade them follow me. Then he bade them follow me. Then, as in then, as in it comes down, down a ways in the sequence of things. Then, then, then. And isn't it something that even at a time where this, 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 this postmodern culture would not have been as thick as it is now, yet these very principles are the very principles that can be very suitable to reaching the postmodern mind and culture. Why? Because as we pointed out earlier, they, they shun instruction and follow this and follow that. You know, they, 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 they don't buy that. They don't, they don't, they don't just take that and, and run with it. No, they, they actually walk away from that. But notice that there is a sequence of, of, of steps that, that Jesus himself took long before he bade them follow me. And so this, this is truly a basis for successful evangelism. To mingle is actually an operative word when it comes to ministry to postmodern community. To mingle. That's so huge. It's so important to mingle. That is to say to intentionally associate with postmodern thinkers, connecting with them in some way or another. And as I pointed out again and again, a little bit enough to be able to recognize this, that, that as a church, we're missing the mark. Something's not connecting because in the Western part of this world, as somebody Adventists, we're just not hitting it with 35 years and younger. We're, we're, we're losing them, we're losing them. In fact, an estimated 80% of Christians don't have a close relationship with non-Christians. We don't. 80%, approximately 80%, this is a significant amount, of Christians don't have a close relationship with non-Christians. Think about those that you consider your friends. Think of your friends. They don't have close relationships with Christians. Think about those who are friends in your circle of life, in your circle of relationship, in your circle of influence. How many of them are individuals that, to some degree or another, have a resemblance of your own worldview? They have a resemblance of, of your beliefs, of your practices, of your behaviors, that's not to say that it's wrong. No, that's, that's good. In fact, the Bible says we ought to assemble together. We ought to gather together. We, we ought to have a shared faith. We ought to, how can light walk with darkness and have fellowship with, with darkness? Yes, I, we understand all of those things, but that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is following the model of Jesus who hung out with sinners, sinners to the point that it was recognized and he was accused of, 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 of mingling with sinners. 
He ate with them and, 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 and associated with, with the prostitutes and the sinners. And, 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 and that was something that he was accused of. But more likely, more than likely, rather, you know someone who is postmodern, and chances are that you'd like to reach them, but you don't, just don't know where to start. Because they are, they are in our communities, they are in our neighborhoods, they are in our workplace, they are in world and fairs and events and malls and parks and they're in concerts, they're everywhere. And we are in, an, in a place and opportunity where we can make a difference. And the solution is simple. You start right where you are. For this kind of ministry, we don't need to, to sign up to do a mission trip. We're just talking about a mission trip to Bolivia. We don't need to embark on this, this journey across the land, across the seas, to be able to reach people. We can start where we are because they're our neighbors. They're our coworkers. They're in our workplace. They, we have, all have neighbors and coworkers that need to hear about God's amazing plan of salvation. Think about the non-believers that you rarely, regularly come in contact with. How, how well do you know them? How well do you know them? The first step is to create a connection or entry point into their lives. And that entry point or connection is not, is not most effective or it's not to be a religious point or even a spiritual point of context or contact. It could be something as simple as finding common interests or experiences. Here are some bridge building questions to help you connect with non-believers or postmodern thinkers around you. Um, what's your children's names, your family, introducing your children to their children? What's your hobbies? Do you have favorite sports? Where did you grow up? Where, do you go to, where did you go to school? Where do they go to school? What are your favorite books or movies? What is your religious background? What is your upbringing? The most important thing is to make a genuine interest in their lives. But one thing we have to understand is this, is that developing authentic relationships takes time. It takes time. It's not going to be fast. It's not going to be quickly. It takes time. It requires you to give of yourself. But God has called us to, to make disciples, and, and that takes time and commitment. And when we think of ideas of how to reach postmoderns, there's, there's two aspects of it. One is both individual efforts, or, and then there's corporate efforts. In other words, we are a body of believers and we are joining our efforts together. We are the Lord's army and we are intentional in preparing a people for Christ in return. And we have that individual responsibility as a disciple of Christ, but we also have the corporate responsibility as a body, as a congregation, as a church. It's not just your responsibility to fulfill the Lord's commission, but your body, your church has that same responsibility. 
And so we're going to take a moment because I want you to, to kind of verbalize and interact just a bit as we have had uh, opportunities to do that in previous sessions. I want you to turn to somebody who's sitting next to you or near you and maybe not more than three at the most two. And I want you to just brainstorm for a moment. What would it take or what would it mean to, quote, mingle with postmoderns successfully. Not, not in a way that is awkward, cheesy, like, what is this? No, I'm talking about what would be maybe something that has worked in your experience, or what would it take to, quote, mingle? Emphasis and focus on mingling. What are some mingling ideas that would bring you into close association with postmodern thinkers that are non-religious or non-Christian and, and, and be able to mingle with them in a way that is actually welcoming and even comfortable for both of you. Go ahead and, and discuss that for just a few minutes. What would it take to mingle with postmoderns successfully? Take a minute to do that. All right, so mingling, mingling, to associate with others. You know, every church, every church, every year they do, or every two years, depending, does a, a nominating committee, and you select ministry leaders for ministries in the church. And though all ministries are important, there are some that, that, have, that have more... Um, they have more significance when it comes to our relationship with the community. And one of them that is, I believe, in some churches a little too underrated, and that is what's often known as social ministry. Social ministry. Social ministry. What is social ministry in the local church? Social ministry is, headline news here, is not primarily for the saints to be able to, to laugh and have a good time together. Social ministry ought to be primarily for our community, for our contacts with people, for our connections with people that would not accept an invitation for, you, for them to come with you to church, but they would accept an invitation to play what game? What game were you just telling me about? <laughs> What's the name of the game? Heads up. Heads up. Heads up. You're using your smartphone and you put it on your forehead and it's like charades, you got to guess, okay, is showing up and be able to have a time where we're going to play, we're going to laugh, we're going to have a good time, and we're just going to enjoy socializing together. But not in the church. Social ministry is most effective in home groups, at, in neighborhoods, and places where neighbors can be invited to come as you socialize and associate with one another. Social ministry is primarily an evangelistic initiative. The Savior mingled with people as one who desired their good. That is to say that he mingled with people with the intention, though, 
to make someone feel cared for. In other words, as I show up with my basketball at the neighborhood basketball court and I start shooting hoops and some guy shows up and he does the same and I start shooting with him and we start getting to know each other, we talk, we, 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 we play a little 21 or something, and, and then we say, hey, we got to do this again. Yeah, let's do it again. Hey, what's your number? Here, here's mine. And we share numbers. We share contact information. Next thing you know, we've played two or three, four times together. And this time, hey, I'm gonna, my cousin's in town. He's going to come over. He's going to join us next week. Sweet, let's, let's play. And, and as we get to know each other. But then, but then he tells me, oh, listen, my cousin actually can't come. He was in a car accident. And he can't make it. Now, as boom, freeze, freeze the frame, as they say. Right there and then, I could say, I could, I, there's two possible responses to that. I could say, oh, man, man, that's, that's too bad. It's, I, he did, he's alive, right? Oh, good, good. Well, maybe next time, right? All right, man. Hey, take it easy. I hope your cousin survives, gets better, gets, you know, recovers, and so on and so forth. And we leave it at that. Now, was that... Good interaction? Sure. It was, it was what, how friends, you know, interact together. But what Jesus did was he mingled with them, but what? For the purpose as one who desired their good. In other words, in other words, when one desires one's good, is, is not good for the life that is, but it's good for the life that is to come. We desire that they also have an opportunity to have eternal life. And so my, my purpose is to mingle with them for the purpose of take two, saying, oh, your cousin, wow, it's a serious car accident. Hey, listen, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Christian and, and, uh, and Tim, because now we know each other's names. See, it's not like we just met. Hey, Timmy, listen, bro, let can I pray? I, I believe that there's a God who, who can heal, and, and, he, and he's a God of love. Can I, can I pray for your cousin right now, right now? Can we pray? And right there and then, with my arms on his shoulder, I pray for Tim and pray that God would, would be with him. After the prayer, my friend doesn't even say amen, doesn't even acknowledge I even prayed, but he walks saying, hey, we'll catch up later. But what happened? What happened? We, something happened, something very significant happened. Because down the road, what happens? People find themselves in a crisis. In a crisis that catches them off guard unexpectedly. And when you're in a crisis, there are times that you're going to dare to just try anything and anything that can offer some kind of relief or hope. And you don't care what it is or who it is. I got to get it from somebody. And that somebody will be the someone who witnessed about a higher power, a God who cares, a God who loves. They'll come to you. They'll come to you in a time of crisis in their own private lives. And they'll say, listen, can I talk to you about something? Because they know that you care and that you listen. How can we mingle with people as one who desires their good? One of the many ways that one can do that is, I'll share a few with you. One is pay attention to their needs and wants. Pay attention. Just have your antennas up. Recognize any kind of expression 
of a sense of need or want in their lives. If they're students, there's going to be that exam that's coming up and they're concerned about it. If they're in a job where, where, where the management has fired numerous people and, but they're still in that short list and they don't know what's going to happen the next month, you know, as they express those needs or those wants, you listen because they're telling you a story. They're telling you their story. And when people tell their story, in the postmodern mind, telling a story is huge. When they share their story. Because for a postmodern, the story is the most valuable thing in the world. It's the story. Your story and my story. Because as they hear how my story includes a God who makes my story better and more enjoyable and fulfilling and satisfying, they're going to listen to my story and paying attention to your friend's needs and wants might be, it's often the hardest thing, but the most important thing, way to show that you care. And if you dismiss or ignore when it comes to simple things, say, they'll pick up on that. If you don't respond to their story by showing evidence that you're engaging and listening to what they're saying, they won't feel that you care about them. Therefore, they are much less likely to share something deeper with you in the future. Another is notice when someone is feeling down. Notice when someone is feeling down. Showing you care means paying attention to your friend's mood. Be masters of, of, of detecting, reading the countenance and being able to recognize the signals that you, you see that reveal what's happening inside. If you notice carefully enough, they will shine through and you will notice. And it's okay. It's asking if they're okay when, when they seem discouraged or down. When they seem blue, it's okay to ask. It's okay because if you can do anything for them, it's okay to be able to listen and ask. Signs that someone is unhappy includes being unnaturally quiet or, or being moody or, or so having bouts of anger. These are signs that there's something deep happening in their life. Another, another, another means of connecting is talking together frequently. Connect frequently. Have a continual exercise of connecting every, every time, every week to talk about how things are going, new developments in life and anything stressful in life, making sure that you're listening to your friend's story. You should care about them and their opinions, not what you want to say, but listening to what they have to say. Trust your friend, another another concept of connecting or mingling for the purpose of showing that you care and are interested in their good is is trusting your friend with personal deep thoughts and experiences that you're having in your own life in other words being transparent being open when you open your life i know it's something that is risky i know it's something that's uncomfortable but it's authentic and that appeals, that appeals to the postmodern mind. Feeling, that someone, feeling like someone trusts you is a great way to feel cared for. 
and pe people fe will feel that you trust that they that you trust them when you're willing and, and ready to open up your life and share with them what's going on with you. Building trust, building trust, keeping promises is something that's paramount. Basic respect for someone is paramount in showing your affection. If, if, you, if you make an appointment, show up on time. If you finish, if you promise to finish, finish. Get the job done. If you agree to keep a secret, don't tell anybody. Planning events with people. Making it a schedule. Prioritizing to show up and to do things together. Make dinner plans. Agree to go for a walk together before, before work. Make friends a priority in valuing how you manage your time. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we have distinct doctrines. I want to shift gears just slightly here as, as we continue. We have distinct doctrines that are uniquely suited for two postmoderns. But first, we have to take ownership of it, though. Before we go there, I got to tell you, and I got to complete my story. When I went to Southern, five, fifth generation Seventh-day Adventist, in the theology program, but yet I find myself with a roommate that was radically different than me. He listened to music that I, I knew that I should never be caught listening to. He listened to, he watched things that he would later come back and tell me about. Things that, for me, was the impartable sin to have ever seen myself growing up. But here was a guy who was, who was all this and that and, and much more. And, and he caused me to straight out question, who am I? Why do I believe what I believe? I was no longer in the shadow of my Dad, who was a pastor, and, and I was no longer in the pastor's home going to church and, and, and this and the other. I, I was now on my own. And I came to realize that I had not, even though I was 18 years old, I had been baptized at the age of 10, I found myself realizing that I don't have ownership of my faith. And I remember I would go out on long runs and I would start weeping. I would start crying because I felt that I was myself committing the impartable sin. This was a paradigm shift in my life. I was, my world was being shaken because I questioned my beliefs. But during that time, it's not that I denied the existence of God. I believed in God. What I questioned was the, the, the teachings that I had, had come to uphold and to claim and to profess that I believed in. Did I, why did I believe what I believed according to the scriptures? And I found myself going on hikes down the biology trails behind the campus there. And I would take my Bible and I would be on, on my own. And I didn't care if there was anyone within listening dis, distance. And I, would, I remember dropping down to my knees and I would cry out to heaven. I said, God, it was a two-word prayer. God, convict me. Convict me, God. And I would cry out to God. I would plead, convict me. And I was determined to go to the scriptures and pray to God that I would not make any 
predetermined conclusions or, or any conclusions based on what I had been taught, but I wanted convictions on what I myself found in the word of God. And this happened for several months. I was, I was scared to death. It was the most frightening experience of my life. Yet it was the most rewarding because I can't even explain to you the sense of fire in my heart. I felt, as it were, a burning sensation, literally. I knew what I believed because I knew it in the word of God. And I was willing, I would be willing to stand for my faith in the face of certain death because I knew in whom I believed. And as we examine doctrine and find ways to communicate that to others, it has to begin with us. We must first own it. If we don't own it, postmodern thinkers are people of great discernment and they will, they will recognize that there's a disconnect between what you profess, what you claim, and, and how you live your life. I don't see it. And when they don't see it, they're walking away and looking for it elsewhere. So we must own our faith. So let's begin, for example, with the Sabbath. When I'm, ex when I'm asked about my religious beliefs, I always start with the Sabbath. Always. I describe it as the greatest single gift that God gave after he created the earth. It's, it's a one day in a week vacation. It's, 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 it's a time that I hang out with friends. I, I, go, I go to church and, and do acts of kindness in the community. It's a day in which my creator created time to socialize and mingle with me and associate with me. I have a God in my life who cares for me. It's a way to say no to work, no to shopping, no to television. It's a day to go unplugged. By the time I have finished, someone telling, me, telling someone about the gift of the Sabbath, the typical response that I have gotten myself from, from postmodern young adults is this. Hey, listen, that's that sounds really nice. I'm not sure I, I could do that. But I'm envious. I wish I had a day like that in my week. <laughs> and it, and it, but it's, it's a very, very positive point to end on. There is no slamming the door on my face, so to speak. There is no negative re response. It's actually a very curious and open response. At the end of the day, postmoderns have the same problem with being overworked and overwhelmed stressed in life and needing to take a time out, needing to just unplug and, and leave behind the hustle and bustle of daily mundane routines and find yourself just in a tranquil place where it's unplugged and it's a quiet place. Things that are offered by the gift of the Sabbath. And you know what's interesting? is that they are less likely than moderns to think that attending church on Saturday is any weirder than attending church on Sunday. The postmodern, that's not an issue for them. Sunday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday, they, they don't need to understand 
that there was an initial change to the Sabbath and this and that, for them, that's irrelevant. What they value is that there is a day, the idea of having a whole day of the week set aside to hang out with friends and to make the world a better place. Postmoderns love that. There's a unique appeal to that. And you know, and this would apply to all our fundamentals, really, in this sense. Because we all know the what of the fourth commandment. We all know the what. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We know what God wants us to do. That's not a question that we ask. We know what God expects us to do. A postmodern, though, will turn a deaf ear to the what. That doesn't interest him or her. They don't care to know about the what. Don't tell me what to do. That's your truth, remember? I I don't need to know what to do. So that right there, we're striking out if we start with the what. Some of us, some of us truly know how to keep the Sabbath. We know how to. These are the things that make the Sabbath special or, or set apart from the other six days. But a postmodern doesn't care how to do something that is of, of no value to them. They don't care how you do something, which for them is insignificant. So you, starting with the what and the how is foof, foof, going right over their heads. In order to step into the postmodern world, and begin making connections, you need to start with the why. You need to start with the why. And I would challenge you to take a look at all 28 fundamental beliefs, and most of you, or a lot of you, probably are experts in outlining the what of each one of the 28. This is what I believe, and this is what God says, and this is what the Bible teaches, and so on and so forth. But start with the why. And it completely changes the perspective of how you see the teachings. Why do we do what we do? Why, for example, with the fourth commandment, why do we keep the Sabbath holy? Why? Why do we need the Sabbath? Why do we want the Sabbath? You see how it completely changes the way you approach the subject. Why? And starting with the why is the only way to begin with the postmodern. And why, by the way, is not to rest. It's not to attend church. It's not to stop doing the mundane things. That's the result Why is a purpose. Why? It's the very reason why it exists. Why? Go deeper than just the results of keeping the Sabbath. But why? Remember, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was made for man. Why? Starting, let's talk about the state of the dead. That's another fundamental belief that the world in general might differ with? Well, postmoderns, while they have no real belief in a Judeo-Christian God, many of them do sense some kind of higher power, that some kind of higher power exists. 
And as they look at the predominant Christian beliefs, they, they crash into this traditional view of hell that is popular, popular in popular theology, which says that anyone who is not saved has a soul which survives in hell and is tormented by God for eternity. Then they reasonably and with unexpectedly, uh, they ask, well, how can your God who tortures souls for eternity be a God who, who cares? Be a God who, who cares for me. Be a God that will make my life better now. How, how can that be? They have mo been mostly taught and believed that when life is over, it is over. And a God who does not torture the wicked or lost, but allows them to go quietly to sleep, is a, to a notable degree, it's, it's something lovable. It's something that, that appeals to the mind. Why? Because it's, it's a God who has the best interest in mind is a God who has an interest for good in me. How about the investigative judgment? Another distinct doctrine. And thinking about the judgment, there are two general views. The traditional Christian church says that we will have to stand before God after I die, and he will review all the things I've done and have not done. And of course, when this happens, my sins will be as the sand of the sea and, and anything good or praiseworthy that I've done will be of small or insignificant. Well, I know that ultimately I will get to the point, I will get to point to the righteousness of Jesus, but I will have to face in the judgment after I die, I will have to face all these horrible moments of humiliation as my life is reviewed by God. This is the, the popular view of judgment but the Adventist understanding of the judgment which includes what is called the investigative judgment teaches me that this will happen in heaven while I am on earth alive or dead depending on where my life is relative to the coming of Christ and, and that when my name comes up I will not have to be there to face my, my inadequate record. God will be there and he will look at my record and Jesus will present the defense. And if I have said yes to Jesus, who is eternal life and I know him, then I will ever have, I will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. My point is this, that the God of the postmodern has to be one who is gentle, loving, and redeeming. And this picture of God appeals greatly to the postmodern, a God who is not willfully or needlessly inflicting pain in my life, a God who wants me to have happiness and not pain. Contrasting pictures of God can essentially result from the same doctrine. We could have, we could have doctrine, but from the same belief surfaces two distinct, even contrasting views of God. There are examples that one can come up with, and the picture of God that results from that is a picture that will appeal to a postmodern mind. The health message is a practice that also fits well with postmodern thinking. 
in recent years, Christian churches outside of Adventism have increased their focus. Have you noticed on how to apply Bible principles to make marriages, jobs, relationships work better? As opposed to something that will only improve after death or when we get to heaven. Adventists, we add to all this the idea that God wants us to have healthy physical bodies here on earth. And we uniquely view God as a God who wants to holistically make our lives richer and better. And this fades nicely into the postmodern view. Health is a universal interest. And that right there appeals to this mindset. And postmoderns value relationships, though, above all. I would conclude with this. It was Theodore Roosevelt who once said, People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And in order to show that you care, we must be willing to model open, transparent relationships, to openly share our lives with those who see the world very differently. And you know what? At the end of the day, the Holy Spirit is the one who takes us as willing vessels, humbling ourselves before God and saying, God, I love you. You are better than life itself. And deep within our hearts, we can't help but tell. We can't help but tell somebody of who God is because we have tasted and seen how good God is for ourselves. And I'll tell you this one thing, that as you're willing to be used by God as a vessel, as an instrument of righteousness, to shine for him, for him to, to, to abide in and then shine through if you're willing to do that, it is a prayer that, love, that God loves to answer and he'll begin answering it right here, right now. God is looking for men and women to be his instruments to prepare a people for his soon return. Willingness is all he's looking for. He's not looking for your resume of abilities and gifts and strengths and all those things. All those things are good, but it's not what God needs. What he needs above all that is willingness. And a prayer that says, God, ignite a fire in me. Is that your prayer today? It only takes a prayer. And God answers. As we close, I invite you, if at all possible, would you kneel down together with me? Let's, let's kneel together. Let's kneel. Our Father in heaven, by kneeling just now, Lord, it is a sort of declaration that we're making a declaration of dependence, dependence on you 
for all things. For without you, we can do nothing. We surrender all because you surrendered all for us. And Lord, right here, right now, Lord, would you please an answer to the prayer that's in our heart right now, Lord, would you please baptize us, anoint us right now with the fire of the Holy Spirit. We thank you. And we know that you've answered the prayer, not, not because we have this sensation, not because we may feel or not feel anything, but only because you have promised and you never, you never fail. You're faithful to your promise. And I ask, Lord Jesus, as the, as the fire burns within our hearts, that you would instruct us, equip us, train us to be vessels that will shine for you in a dark world. Lord, for your glory, would you bring into our lives people that you would have us witness to and lead into a saving relationship with you. As we pray for people to witness to, Lord, would you please bring them to our mind's attention, bring them to us. Here we are, Lord, send us. Thank you, and I pray, Lord, that anything and everything that we might have pondered during this seminar that you could use in us and in our minds to make us the most effective witnesses for you. May it be so, Lord, and may we leave this place transformed and equipped to go back to our communities to make a difference, difference for your glory. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for answering our prayer. In your name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.